Hello, hello. Get ready for a journey through time with the Historians podcast, hosted by myself, Derek Mulligan, and my co-historian, Neil Federson-Hall. We invite you into our virtual living room for weekly fireside chats with world-renowned historians and authors. From ancient history to present day, the Historians covers it all with guests who have lived and experienced the stories they share. Join myself and Neil as we whiz back and forth through time, exploring the truth behind historical events that turn out to be way stranger and more exciting than fiction. So grab a cuppa and get ready to be transported to another time and place. Tune in now to join our history-loving community. Here we go. Well, welcome, hipstorians, to another episode. And in keeping with our weekly Irish weather updates, it's uh, still kind of sunny um, with a little bit of cloud today. So we're still enjoying a, a good spell. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We are here to talk with Dr. Ian Garner um, about the Russian state, this propaganda, and how it affects its youth. Ian is a Russian analyst, he is a historian, and he's written a couple of books. The one we will refer to today mostly will be Z Generation. This man has a wealth of experience when it comes to Russia. I would also like to introduce the listeners to our latest recruit to the historian's team. This is Yvonne Mulligan. Hi. <laughs> Hello, Yvonne. She has recently taken an interest, or let's say it's taken a year of historians' episodes to get her here, and we're really hoping she'll bring some fresh inquisitiveness to uh, the proceedings and offer something a little bit different to, to what we, we have been doing beforehand. So, yeah, so give her a big welcome. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, so let's get started. Uh, I think Ian is here. Welcome, Ian. Thanks so much for coming to the historians. All right. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We were just talking, actually, just before we started the recording about the guitar that's hanging on your, your office wall. You studied music in St. Petersburg. Maybe we'll touch a little bit on that, because I suppose that's really giving us the basis to why you know, you're know you so interested in, in Russia as a whole. You've obviously spent some time there. You've, you've had some good times there, I'm sure. And um, what was your what was your experience in uh, studying music there? You know, so I, I was a music student back in the mid 2000s at the, the conservatory in St. Petersburg. And that was at a time when the, the conservatory, like many Russian institutions, was desperately trying to internationalize to bring in international students. International students pay good international student fees, which, you know, compared to British university fees were actually actually pretty good. And, um, you know, I, I felt so welcome there. And St. Petersburg at the time, and, and even today, I think, is probably the most cosmopolitan, the most outward looking of all of Russia's cities. But it was just a normal life back then. You know, you knew 18, 19, 20, 21 year olds who just wanted to go out and do all of the normal things that any other undergraduate students, graduate students would want to do in other parts of the Western world. And so seeing seeing the change that has happened over the last few years has been extraordinary because it just seems like a, a different world and, and in many ways a lost world. And I think as many Russians are cheering the fact that Russia is becoming patriotic, others are mourning the loss of that world and mourning the loss of opportunities that they once had. 
this all comes down to the power of propaganda and how quickly things can change. And, and I know, you know, this this propaganda stretches way back. And, and perhaps you can give our, our listeners just a, a foundation as to where, you know, some of the roots of propaganda and what Putin is using to obviously try and indoctrinate the nation into his ideology. Oh, boy, there is where to begin and i mean we could we could begin with almost the founding of the russian state but i think if i had to if i had to pick a really important period for understanding the roots of this no i'll pick two periods which is cheating according to my own logic already firstly peter the great the turn of the the 17th into the 18th centuries when Russia, which had been relatively isolated from the West until then, was suddenly wrenched out of its slumber by Peter, who wanted to Europeanize, who wanted to turn Russia into a great military power and a great cultural power, and basically took the country with him. And then the second period is the Second World War, and nothing looms larger in the Russian imagination and in Russian patriotic culture than a myth of World War II in which Russia was symbolically sacrificed to save the world. Stalingrad, it's a very powerful image, I suppose, symbolically, in that that the Russian state cannot be defeated, and it shows the difficulties uh, in in trying to take over a country of its vastness that stretches way out to China and, and Japan. They obviously felt they were the victors of the Second World War, how they took apart the, uh, the German war machine that had up until that point been ripping its way through Europe. So symbolism is very, very important. The title of your book being Z Generation. What is the Z? Where did this come from and why is it important? What is the Z? It's a good question because in essence, the, the Z is nothing. It's a completely empty symbol. It's it's devoid of meaning. It has no roots in Russian culture, no particular religious significance. It is is new as of February 2022. And as far as we can understand, the state did plan to to win the war in Ukraine very quickly. I'm not sure if I believe the whole three-day, Kiev in three days story, but, you know, it was expected to be over quickly and there were plans made for a victory celebration within weeks. And when it didn't come off, they needed something to start to act as a kind of repository for patriotic feeling, a symbol, an idea to rally around. And they hit upon this idea of the Z, which seems to come from the groupings of the military units that were entering Ukraine. So there were two military uh, military formations, one beginning with Z, Zapad, which means the West, and one beginning with V, Vostok, East. So one came in from the northwest, going down towards Kiev, and one came in from Donetsk, Luhansk, the east of Ukraine. And so they picked this symbol, and then you whisper meaning to, into it. Or in the Russian case, I guess you scream meaning into it by suddenly coating pop culture, schools, cars, uh, parades, state television, T-shirts, sort of cheap, slightly crappy consumer goods. It's all quite tacky, but you just fill people's space with this symbol until it seems to resemble something. And now it's unavoidable. 
right? And any Russian, whether they support the war, whether they hate the war, looking at that westernized Z, they know exactly what it symbolizes. That's really quite extraordinary in terms of speed of making meaning, isn't it? It's only been 17 months of the war. Is that right? 18 now? I'm not sure. And that's what every good dictator needs in order to win, win a battle. They, they need those things that uh, people can identify with. The ideology then that they can hang their, their hat on. And Russia under Putin certainly has taken uh, many a leaf out of the book of Joseph Goebbels. We spoke with Keir Giles um, a couple of weeks back and you know we, we discussed what would happen if somebody, and I know this is actually bringing it a little bit present perhaps as well, if somebody was to depose Putin, if someone was to take him out, you know? And the answer in short was, there'll be somebody right underneath him, you know, who'll just do the same thing, that this is now embedded in the Russian psyche. Um, and it is them. And it, I mean, they're obviously using this whole thing of the East versus West. And if something is talked about enough, it manifests, you know, and, and it becomes very, very hard to put back again. Like you went down the rabbit hole with uh, all this stuff in writing the book. I'm curious to know, right, having got inside all that propaganda, how did you cope inside of that? Like that must have deeply affected you in some way, just by virtue of scrolling through all the various different uh, social media outlets and all that. I mean, did, did you did you find yourself at all starting to feel there's some justification in, into, in, into some of the propaganda? Did you find yourself completely just resistant throughout? Like what, what kind of effect did it have on you? I'll tell listeners a bit about the book and then I'll, I'll answer yeah. the question. So Z Generation is all about how the Russian state is trying to indoctrinate its youngest citizens into a more extreme version of nationalism. We hear constantly that the state has tried to inculcate apathy in its population. So they don't care about politics. They don't participate. But actually, it, it, that's really not true when you look at the last 10 years or so. It was for the first decade and a bit of Putin's rule. But I wanted to figure out how the state is doing this, why it's doing this, and why children are so important in the war. Because we see that Russia celebrates saving what it calls Russian children from Ukraine, right? They are, of course, Ukrainian children. And that's the propaganda that sticks the best. It is creating military youth groups, militarized campaigns, movies, new school, patriotism, military training in, in classrooms, all of this stuff that's, again, unthinkable back when I was in Russia, closer to 20 years ago now. But in terms of the rabbit holes or the looking glasses I fell through, it's like entering an alternate reality where you find easily social media groups where relatively young people are talking to each other in genocidal terms, referring to Ukrainians as vermin, as which is a racially derogatory term, as which means unpeople, right? Non-people, as if they don't exist at all, and talking in these the state's terms of cleansing of destruction. And so I, I was observing what was going on in these groups and interviewing people about what they believed as well. And when I was talking to the more extreme end of the population, it was quite easy to resist things because the, the material is just so absurd. It's so detached from reality. And what I often found was that it was more frustrating because it's like talking to conspiracy theorists. 
when I would put to my subjects, you know, but what about the fact that Russia started the war? Russia, you know, here is Bucha. Here is a crime that Russia has committed. And they would just say, no, you don't understand. You're being lied to. It's your reality that's fake. And then it's very easy to kind of say, well, you know what, mate, you're just, you know, round, round the bend right now. The stories that I found it much harder to deal with were the young Russians who were being oppressed by the state. And so the the worst one I think I had was I, I did an interview with a guy who's a who's a gay artist from Moscow who grew up and sort of matured around about that time when when I was in Russia and found that it was relatively easy to be gay, right? He could find a community, find people to talk to. And then as, as the years went by, he found it harder and harder to live as the state introduced anti-homosexual propaganda laws, as they called it, which were really a blanket means to attack queerness as a kind of disease that is infecting Russians. Again, the language of fascism, right? And his story was, was really tragic. It was really hard to hear the fact that he felt like he was becoming strong and confident and able to find his own voice and then the state makes him political. The state makes him, his words, fight himself inside. And he had to leave. And he was lucky to get to go to, to New York because he's a talented artist and therefore was able to get a kind of, you know, gifted, talented person visa. But many others are in that same situation. And when I when I was talking to him, that was that was deeply upsetting. Like I suppose for the terms of, of reference, because we're, we're talking about fascism, I mean, a lot, a lot of listeners i'm sure and you know i'm sure even you know you yourself that the term itself people just equate it just with the nazi party you know with with second world war germany what way do you define fascism in the terms of of, of your book uh, i mean it's probably quite important i suppose that we kind of sped it out so that people get a real understanding of what this is like this it's not you know nazi germany but like this ain't far off well, firstly, it, it's a mistake to think of fascism as this kind of historically bounded movement, because actually fascism didn't even disappear from Europe until Franco and Salazar were gone, right, in, in Spain and Portugal. And that's well within living memory. You know, we're talking middle-aged Spaniards grew up under that, that regime. And... Fascism for me then, and you can read the excellent scholars on this to read Umberto Eco, the Italian philosopher, and Roger Griffin, who is a British academic. And they would say that, well, fascism is about regeneration of the nation, is about trying to say that the nation is somehow under the attack of degenerating, deleterious forces that are taking it away from some idealized golden utopian past. And, you know, you will re immediately recognize Nazi Germany in this, right? And there is, however, an element of myth-making in the past because it's never a real past. It's an imagined past. And in Russia, that's why we see, we want to return to the Soviet Union. We want to return to the Tsarist Empire. And we want to return to this weird sort of, Russian medieval folklore land at the same time. How can those things make sense? Well, they don't, because fascism never makes sense. It's by its very nature, it's irrational. But the idea is that we've been diseased. And by destroying, by cutting out the, the diseased parts of ourselves, we will be regenerated. Therefore, we have to destroy. 
the method to beat the disease is always destruction. War creates peace. War creates the future. And we've seen that consistently in Russia over the last 20-something years. First thing Putin did when he came to power, we need to fix Russia by invading Chechnya again. Then the Georgians. Then those queer propaganda laws, the anti-homosexual propaganda laws, who is to blame for the lack of perfection in Russian society must be the homosexuals. Therefore, we will attack them. And the language used at the time, and more recently when the laws were, were revisited to make them more draconian, was the language of attack and defense, war, destruction, infection, and disease. And of course, that we will all recognize as the language that is used about Ukraine today. Funny thing about propaganda is uh, the Russians, if, if there were any, which will be listening to this, who have been indoctrinated the whole thing, would say that this is all propaganda. It's the whole the whole area of what what truth is, and then who is to believe. Because naturally, coming from the West myself, certainly I, I'm somewhat biased um, as as to what you know. I think about the state, but propaganda has been put on us, I suppose, since the Second World War. I mean, the whole the Americanization of, of the globe, essentially. I mean, that's that's one good piece of it's positive propaganda. I wouldn't say it's it, it's negative as such, but nonetheless, we've all been taught that America is good and uh, America will will bring riches, and if you follow that path and democracy and everything, we will have you know a good a good life largely we have the whole argument about what what is true what is it um peter pomerantsev in, in his book he called the hall of crooked mirrors wasn't that the way he described peter's, peter's great and if you've read peter's work then you can see the the way that i discuss russia and the way that i discuss the propaganda today which is a a weird blend of hard news and infotainment so often you don't even really realize you're engaging in politics when you're watching some sort of trashy talk show but really it's full of representations of the state's narrative and in particular on social media where this is where peter i think stopped because he was writing his books before social media became so dominant as it is in our understanding of the world if you go on a russian social media network or a russian group on a foreign social media network, 100% you'll be exposed to propaganda narratives. Many Russians repeat them without knowing it. And that's the key. The beauty, well, the genius part of the Russian propaganda system is in the way that people share this kind of entertainment trashy stuff. They engage in the talk of propaganda. They engage in the state's terminology without even really realizing it. So they don't feel like they're becoming authoritarian kind of citizens. And on, on the social media aspect, when the young people are doing this, you, you were saying that it comes across as they're quite westernized, but yet it is all the propaganda speak within their narrative. Is that correct? Yes, I mean, it's not all the propaganda speak, right? And this is this is the beauty of it. So if we were to look into, for example, TikTok, right? And TikTok is the most popular network used by young Russians, just like it seems to be everywhere. I'm sure some clever listener will point out that there's a country where it's not popular at all. Um, but you'll you'll take my point on that. So there is this group, the Youth Army, which is a paramilitary youth group that has existed since 2016. Its membership is, is booming even since the beginning of the war. 
has 1.3 million members as of the end of last year. It's a creature of the Ministry of Defence, and it really is a military youth group. It's designed to prepare kids for the army. They teach them to use guns, grenades, chemical warfare attacks, you, you name it, as well as doing all the parading and, and sports competitions and things you might associate with that kind of group. Now, the state has been using TikTok. The youth army has an official TikTok account where it posts materials. And there is this very odd blend on these materials between using influencers, so they'll bring in celebrities. There will be young people standing there in the full kit, which of course is this kind of immaculate branded uniform. And there is very much a sense of sort of branding about these movements and fun. It's very, very modern in that regard. And they'll be playing like Western rap music in the background of these videos they'll do memes and dances in these videos, even that are kind of Western Western memes, right, that have taken off abroad, then they get the youth army kids to do them. And in some of the smaller youth army groups, it's really obvious that it is the kids that are choosing to do that, right, that these accounts are led by the children, not by some sort of, you know, authoritarian figure telling them you better go and film a fun TikTok video right now or else. These kids want to do it because it's fun, it's participatory, it's part of our identity, but they don't see a, a conflict between engaging in kind of the aesthetic forms, the behaviours, the cultural symbolism of the West, and playing it as their kind of youth army selves at the same time. There is no sort of public-private self in that regard. It simply is their personality. That's truly frightening. These are the kids that were born after you left, essentially, uh, and who will be there to, to continue the fight. And do you think Putin is essentially setting up what's going to happen when he does die? You know, or do you think he's, he's desperately trying to, to hang on to power just himself? Or if to bring it back to what I was mentioned, Kira Giles there before, is, is this whole system now just being set up to run automatically, no matter who's in power? And through the messaging that these kids have had, somebody will want to go and pick up the reins where he left off. It is really hard. And I imagine Keir would have said something pretty close to this because I, I, know, I know the things he says fairly well. I imagine that he would have said that we are not going to see some liberal Democrat white knight riding into Russia to take over power anytime soon. And you know what? We watched Evgeny Prigozhin at the weekend attempt to coup, maybe. We're not quite sure what he was attempting. Something big went down. But there were no liberal democratic figures hovering in the wings, waiting to storm in. People did not turn out into the streets to oppose Putin, to demand the end to dictatorship and authoritarianism. And when you look at what these children are being taught, and the ways in which the state is closing off access or jailing people who have kind of alternative identities and alternative ideas, it is very hard to see that this coming generation are going to look beyond this message that Russia is a great nation, Russia is fated to save the world, Russia is under attack, and it is somebody else's fault. That, that's the key to it. There is not much of a sense within the population, I think, of Things are going wrong for us, and therefore we have to change ourselves. Maybe some of the blame is on ethnic Russians, rather than actually 
this is the fault of Ukrainians, homosexuals, it could be ethnic minorities, it could be Jews, it almost doesn't matter, as long as it's not Russians. And so I don't see a great change coming. No, and, and same, I mean, likes of this podcast, obviously we haven't been exactly uh, flying the flag for Russia on, on two occasions. Presumably, you know, we get uh, we get dumped out of the system. Like what, like how much can Russians see beyond the borders of, of Russia? Is, is everything censored and filtered out or are, are they able to catch glimpses of what they might be able to learn as being the truth? So... I mean, still in Russia today, and this is the great difference to to Nazi Germany, right? It is very easy to get access to any information you want, including completely forbidden information. And the state is not tracking and prosecuting people for looking at CNN or the BBC or what have you. You can download a VPN, and we know that the most popular apps right now in Russia are VPNs. And you can get anything you want. Now, are they popular because people want news information or because they just want to have fun on Instagram, which is currently banned? They want to use Facebook, which is currently banned, right? So we shouldn't assume that simply using a VPN means that you want to break out of this kind of mindset. The question I have, though, is, well, there are two questions. Firstly, if you're a sort of vaguely patriotic Russian, but not a, you know, complete headbanging warmonger, When you look at information from abroad, what are the terms that you pass that information in? I.e., when you hear news about why the state is corrupt, what do you do with it if you read the BBC? Do you instantly say, that is propaganda, that is a lie, I don't believe it, in which case access to extra information hasn't helped you at all? Or do you change your mind? And, And the research says that most people in those sorts of positions in Russia and elsewhere we'll reject that information out of hand. And the other question I have is, even if you do change your mind, where do you go to join an opposition movement? There are no opposition movements in Russia, at least not large scale. There are bits and pieces, dribs and drabs of groups, very disparate, very disconnected, and they are all struggling with these same questions. How do we break apart this patriotic identity and offer something meaningful and better that doesn't look like it's Western propaganda. Yeah, <laughs> very difficult because I've heard stories as well that you know even even Russians that might be living in communities uh, around America, they still feel the pull. You know, they still feel split between whether it is actual Russian propaganda or whether it's the West who's getting offer, offering all the, all the propaganda. So even outside its borders, this is, this is having an effect. All this stuff, right? I mean, it, it, it is important and clearly, you know, it's very important to you and you, you've, you've written about it and you're obviously trying to, to make a, a point that this is going to go somewhere and it isn't going to end well. You know, I mean, if, if, if we're talking about all these things that the, the Russian kids who will, you know, soon become adults, who will start having their own kids, and then we're into a second generation, you know, of, of, of propaganda, at what point do they absolutely say, yeah, this, this is it, we, we need to go to war with, with the West? Um, now, effectively, they'll think they are, and in lots of ways, it is a war with the West already. I mean, what's going on in, in Ukraine is being funded by the West. Uh, so, you know, by proxy, we're in there already. We're somewhat helping 
be the justification for defending the motherland, which is obviously the narrative that the, the Russians uh, are taking as Ukraine is still part of, of, of the motherland. But what, what hope is there? If this is how successful the propaganda has been. What hope is there for a positive outcome for Russia in the future? Aside from war. So I think, although I sound like a remarkable pessimist, <laughs> but there, there is, look, all of the things that we've talked about, this is not because, this is not happening because Russians are innately evil or innately warlike. All of the things we're talking about are culturally constructed phenomena. They are choices made by people, by politicians, by groups. And therefore, those, those politicians, people and groups can make different choices and slowly push people away from this warlike identity. I think those who advocate for, for the break apart of Russia are probably going down the wrong route. I think that will only create more animosity and more sense of betrayal and, and hatred and blaming the ethnic other. And we must remember that ethnic Russians are the majority group in Russia by a long, long way. That doesn't mean that they have to get their way. But it does mean if you have 100 million pissed off ethnic Russians because they feel like, once again, they're the losers of history, you're going to have a problem on your hands, right? So what do you do? You have to create a sense of Russian identity that moves away from war being the answer. You have to create a sense of identity in which it is okay to be Russian, but to be Russian could mean to be Orthodox Christian as it does today, but also you could be a Muslim, you could be a Buddhist, you could be a Protestant, um, Seventh-day Adventist, I don't know, whatever, right? In which you could be straight, you could be gay, in which the answer to the problem does not necessarily lie in war, but lies in changing the political culture, changing the system within Russia. And we know we can do that. We know that countries can be changed and the great benefit we have is being able to access Russians using social media, using the internet. Again, think back to Nazi Germany. You want to influence the population? Well, guess what? Basically impossible. Today, if I want to go and influence some Russians, I can literally load up TikTok. I can load up VK right now. I can go post a message saying anything I want. So think if our governments were running these kinds of operations wisely and on a mass scale, it would be very plausible. And this is not an easy project, but as part of a long-term project to actually change some minds rather than waiting for the next war to roll around in five years, 10 years, 15 years, we don't know. But it'll come because it has to come if they follow this. It does, and, and timing is everything. And if you, my, my opinion on it is, you know, if you're going to do it, the timing is 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 now where America is at its weakest. It, it ain't going to fight a foreign war anytime soon. In my my opinion, I don't think they, short of a draft, I don't think they've managed even to get the, the numbers of, you know, of of troops up, up there to do that. So. Okay, so obviously Russia's been in the news this week and the last couple of days, and I know you know you probably know about it as much as, as as I possibly do, but maybe have some contacts in Russia. A couple of weeks ago, you know, Prigozhin and Putin, everything's okay. All of a sudden, then you've got this whole splinter army about to, to march, you know, up to within 250 miles of the capital, I think is where they they actually, uh, the, the, the four group actually paused. And it kind of came out, did, did it come out of nowhere? Did you did you suspect something like this might have been in the offing? I mean, in, in a sense, it came out of nowhere in that if you'd have said to, to any 
person 18 months ago, February 23rd, 2022, this is where we would be today. You know, I would have laughed you out of town. Nobody saw this coming in the way that it did happen. And anybody who tells you differently is giving you a pile of BS, frankly. But I think what when we're thinking about this, well, we, we knew that there was enmity between these different organizations. And we know that consistently during the Putin era, Putin has watched on from above as he's almost baited different power factions to take each other on and resolve their differences between each other rather than getting directly involved. The difference with this challenge, if it is what it seems to be, and that is a big if, is that this seemed to be more of a direct challenge to Putin. And we haven't seen one of these power great power structures, you know, the army, the FSB, the security services, and, and Prigozhin and Wagner, of course, now. We haven't seen them take on Putin in this exact way before. But certainly for the last few months, Prigozhin's been increasingly testy. There's been a war of words between him and the army. There's been ructions at the front. Wagner, as they put it, arrested a Russian lieutenant colonel about 10 days ago now and interrogated him after accusing him of, of firing on Wagner positions. They accused the army of firing on Wagner positions again the other day before the uh, what may have been a coup or was definitely a mutiny. So, you know, this there were some indicators that it was going to happen, but to suggest that they were going to march into Russia itself and march towards Moscow, that is uh, it's surprising. Surprising. Yeah, no, it, it, it certainly is. What's also unusual, I suppose, historically speaking, is what the Wagner Group actually is. And it's, you know, it's similar enough to Blackwater. And the, the, you know, you always go back to the security contractors that were uh, hang off the, uh, hung off the bridge in Iraq and Baghdad. And, you know, what was on the news where they were security contractors, which sounded all, you know, very, oh, they're, they're doing some good good work. No, they're soldiers, you know, mercenaries, so soldiers of fortune. Uh, and that's essentially what the, you know, that is what the, the Wagner group is. It's just, it, I, I found it difficult to understand how Putin was going to manage that situation anyway like they're they're not the national forces i think a lot of people get mixed up with thinking the wagner group are just some department within the russian army framework they're not they're complete they're completely separate uh, and it's a very dangerous line that that tightrope that putin was walking with having like thousands of these guys supposedly doing his bidding I, you you could argue that this was always this was always something that could happen if events were to transpire like his, his his soldiers were getting fired on. But I don't think in the Putin era, I wouldn't have a whole lot of hope for Prigozhin's chances of having a long and healthy retirement. Will, will he go to Belarus? Is that, is that, I mean, that, that, Jesus, who knows? Well, we, we still don't really know what transpired, what Prigozhin's aims were, how serious the challenge was. We don't know whether it ever looked like any army groups were going to defect to Wagner and potentially join in a coup, if that was the goal. We don't know how many troops and how many tanks and armoured personnel carriers Wagner had coming into Moscow. We don't know how many Wagner troops actually supported what he was doing versus those that were quite happy to, well, maybe happy is the wrong word, but weren't, weren't going to object to staying at the front in Ukraine. These are all huge questions. 
And they are questions that would help us answer this question of what comes next, right? Where does Prigozhin actually go? What does the deal look like? Supposedly, he's being sent to Belarus with a number of Wagner soldiers who took part in the mutiny. But he hasn't gone, as far as we know. Today, the Russian press has announced that, well, the, the court case against him for the mutiny is actually still ongoing, even though the announcement at the weekend was that that's been dropped in exchange for his surrender. So once again, you know, this is what it's like living in the Russian information environment. You think you know the answer, you grab at something and you turn it into a narrative. Bigozhin was mad. He wanted to overthrow Putin. He marched on Moscow. He was about to have a battle outside Moscow. That makes sense. But we don't know that that's actually what happened. We have to guess, right? What we can say is if that's what happened and he goes to Belarus, is he going to live out a happy and fulfilling retirement in a villa outside Minsk? Strongly bloody doubt it. Yeah, I don't know if people have the habit of obviously uh, turning up uh, dead or poisoned, uh, one or the other. But uh, like you, you, won't, know, you won't be getting a top floor apartment. Let's put it that way. <laughs> no, no, no. But uh, I mean, I, I was talking to Yvonne, you know, over the weekend. Over the weekend, just you know, she was obviously you were know, having a look at you know history in general and, and and some of the battle scenes and who was fighting these wars. All these wars are fought by kids essentially you know it's people our age that are sending them off to die and that's that's where the tragedy of all this is and that's all the, the kids you're talking about that that are now subject to this propaganda who now believe the, the hype and believe the, the spin uh, it's their lives that are going to be affected um, and it's yeah I, I just you know that's always what fascinates me about history I do feel that uh, when you know where you're just going oh my god imagine it was me imagine if it was one of my kids you know it's it's just it's it's a complete horror show and uh, you know about the truth in russia like all that stuff there we're, we're you know most likely we won't find out personally because by the time it's ever released it'll be somebody else writing a history book way into the future while we're we're, while we're underground or, or wherever we, we may be god russia it's an enigma you know it, it'll, it'll keep giving for centuries more, centuries more, I think. Um, and before we let you go, Ian, like, do you, you presumably have, I mean, do you still have friends over there? Yeah, yeah, I do. And, and you know what? Because many of my friends like me are millennials who tend to come from Petersburg, be better educated, better connected, have a bit more money, many of them have left. Okay. You know, the first sign of war, some of them left immediately, some of them left years ago having seen the writing on the wall. But I do know people that have doubled down on the whole Z thing. And it's sad that I can no longer call them friends because I, I remember a time and I, I can think of people who were very westernized, like normal, normal people, and are now cheering on what is happening. And it is disturbing how quickly people can flip. And that's that's what the Z Generation book is all about. How can people go from this westernized culture into this mad world of believing that we need to kill Ukrainians to save Ukrainians from themselves and to save Russia from fascism? Yeah, yeah. And your book does that in, in space. I mean, it, it, is, it is the book essentially about the war that people should be reading because that it, it is 
it's the why of the war. It's, it, it gets into what's really going on here and what people, you know, should should be put wise to uh, in order that we can make informed decisions. And, uh, you know, when we come to vote people into power and, and whatnot, um, I, I'm all for people becoming politicized in the sense of, you know, what is democracy unless we're actually going to a voting booth and, and, and put, you know, set, setting our stall out. But what you're talking about and what is happening, you know, all, all these decisions, there, there's attempts that these will be taken away from us, that we become so politically and socially, you know, apathetic that, like you said, it just doesn't matter anymore. Whatever, you know, Putin, ah, so what? You know, it's, it's, it's somebody else's bag. But um, yeah, no, a very interesting conversation, I have to say, uh, Ian. I do appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Ian Garner. And the book is Z Generation. Goodbye, Ian. That was lovely listening to you. Thank you so much. Well, Yvonne, what an episode. Frightened scared. of what's ahead? Yeah, scared. Always scared. Yeah, okay. And your first episode with the historians? Oh, scared. Always scared. That's real right. Couldn't be more nervous. Uh, that yeah. is the roller coaster. That is the historians. And uh, welcome, welcome to uh, the madness that is the world that we live in. Well, there you go. All right. Well, on a positive note, uh, if you're in the sunshine, go out and enjoy it. If uh, not, get out and enjoy it. And we'll see you again next week. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. I would like to take just a moment to thank all the Hipstorian followers for your support during the first five months of the show. Both myself and Neil are delighted that so many of you are enjoying what we do here. We plan to continue and expand our efforts into the future. As you can probably appreciate, it does cost to produce the show and we have been funding this ourselves. There is a link within the episode where you can make a one-time one euro enjoyment donation we'd very much welcome uh, any donations at all. In fact, we will be offering a paid subscription tier. More on that later. And anyhow, if uh, you don't have it, don't worry. Keep tuning in. We'll be here.